Hi, I'm Simon Drew, and welcome to the Practical Stoic Podcast, where I dive deep into the ancient philosophy of Stoicism. If you find value in this podcast, then you can become a patron by going to patreon.com forward slash Simon J.E. Drew. Otherwise, you can head to simonjedrew.com to find my writings, my music, and also information about my one-on-one coaching. But apart from that, I hope you enjoy the show. Hey everybody, welcome to the Practical Stoic Podcast, and thank you so much for spending your time here listening to this. And today, I'm going to be having a conversation with none other than Ryan Bush. Now, Ryan is an author, and he's just written a book called Designing the Mind, The Principles of Psychitecture, and we're going to be diving into all of the interesting lessons that he shares in that book, but uh, I'll give you a bit of information about Ryan, and then uh, we'll dive into uh, into the podcast. So... Ryan A. Bush is the founder of Designing the Mind, LLC, a self-development organization focused on providing wisdom, education, and expanding human potential beyond the norm. Ryan's background is in the design of systems. He works with tech startups to design and develop everything from patented physical products to software to buildings to business models. But his most relevant credential is a lifelong appetite for introspective investigation, ravenous reading, and obsessive self-optimization. For more than a decade, he has been studying the insights of ancient teachers, practical philosophers, and cognitive scientists. In his first book, he aims to assemble the puzzle pieces to form a new vision for psychological growth and self-mastery. If you love this episode and you'd like to connect with Ryan, then you can find him on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or you can go to his website, designingthemind.org. And I'm going to have all of those links, including a link to where you can buy his book in the show notes, so you can check them out there. But uh, before we dive into the episode, I just wanted to let you know also that uh, if you've been missing those Seneca episodes that I've been doing lately, then you can still find them over at Patreon. This podcast would not be possible without my amazing Patreon supporters. And if you do have the means, then I would really appreciate you supporting the show by heading over there to patreon.com forward slash Simon J.E. Drew. And there's a whole bunch of benefits that you can get access to uh, over there. So I'd love to see you there. But nonetheless, I do hope that you enjoy this episode and uh, enjoy my conversation with Ryan A. Bush. So Ryan, excited to have you here today, mate. Uh, thank you so much for uh, you, you know setting all this up. Uh, I'm really excited to have this conversation. And um, you've just released this book. Why don't we start there? Because uh, I, I want to know uh, what the process was like for you, how you decided that you're going to write it, but designing the mind, tell me more about this, uh, this work that you've been working on. How long has it been happening and, and, uh, what's the purpose? Yeah. Well, um, yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here, Simon. So, uh, yeah, so the book is called designing the mind, the, the principles of psychotecture and, the process starts quite a few years ago, really. I was um, I was actually kind of a, just in my teenage years when I started kind of becoming a little practical philosopher before I even knew what that was. Uh, I wasn't really reading Stoicism or Buddhism or anything like that just yet. Um, but I was I was obsessed with like figuring out the the formula for happiness and for you know kind of operating your mind, right and um, you know, I, I was taking all these notes about ideas that I had and, and creating these little theories. Um, when I first came across stoicism, 
I, I kind of, my first reaction was that these guys had been uh, plagiarizing my ideas. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know who this Marcus Aurelius guy is, but I think he hacked into my cloud account and read my notes <laughs> and then added a whole lot of depth and eloquence to them, of course. But um, yeah, I, I've been, uh, you know, I, I had this one metaphor I remember when I was younger that, that life is like a dog being on a leash essentially is what we are and going on a walk. Um, you know, there's the, the happy go lucky dogs that, that are kind of good, you know, they're just in for the ride. And then there are the other dogs that are kind of a nightmare to walk. And then they're constantly, you know, insisting on going in one direction or another and, and choking themselves half to death. And I kind of had this metaphor that I thought I was clever for, for, for this, uh, this thing. And, and, you know, there is a lot of truth to that idea that, um, that we don't really have control that we sort of have this illusion that we have over life. And, and, um, you know, we, we, uh, we see these trees, so to speak, that we get attached to, and we start pulling towards them. And, and really, uh, there's pretty much an equal number of trees in every direction. And, uh, you know, happy dogs, so to speak, are the ones that love walking rather than the trees, right? And mm. then I, I realized that Zeno had said the same thing, actually a little better a, a couple millennia before um, that we're like a dog tied to a cart, which uh, works a little better because a cart, you can't even, can't even sway a little bit. So, uh, <laughs> mm. so I, I was kind of, kind of blown away that I was hearing all these ideas when I came across stoicism and more, you know, more with Buddhism or with other sort of practical philosophies. Um, and, and at some point I, I kind of got to the point where I had all these ideas that were, you know, some were my own, a lot of them were drawing from these different philosophies. And I, I had this, uh, this sort of framework that, that it was all starting to fit into. And I kind of felt like I, I just had to write a book at this point. Mm. Um, so I, I kind of, you know, quit a lot of what I was doing. I went part-time at the job I had at the time. Um, and I, you know, basically spent a couple years at this point, a uh, year and a half-ish, writing the book and uh, finally just published it a couple weeks ago. So. Yeah, man. I love it. Well, thank, thank you so much for giving me that, that uh, you know, that background to the book because, um, you know, I know a lot of people are going to find a lot of value in it. And I'm, I'm, I'm also interested in the kind of the symbolism and the, the artwork that you've kind of uh, built it around which is kind of this technological brain sort of a system that you're kind of trying to reprogram, right? So um, you're also a designer by trade, is that right? That's correct. Yeah. I, I call myself a systems designer, uh, really for lack of a better term. But uh, originally the background is kind of in product design, like physical products, um, mm. anything from camping gear to robotic tennis ball collectors. But at this point I've done software and apps. I've done book covers, of course, and, and graphics and stuff. Um, and so I, I did kind of have these few things come together because I had been using this, this technological metaphor increasingly to understand my own mind. Um, you know, my, my self-improvement process was a little more, I think, technical, at least the way I looked at it, than the, the typical sort of inspiration, self-help kind of thing. I was very interested in the nuts and bolts. And I started thinking of the mind as software, essentially, that can be optimized, you know, gradually and incrementally. And, and it really came together with a few things. I think, you know, you've got evolutionary psychology, which, 
you know, essentially says that we have these different tendencies that were programmed into us for certain biological purposes. And they're not all good for us necessarily, even if they're good for our genes. So we've got negative emotions, we've got bad habits, we've got cognitive biases. And these are all essentially built into us by default, but not necessarily fixed. I was looking at these different ideas in, in practical philosophies, and I was seeing their, these great thinkers' words as these snippets of open source cognitive code, so to speak, that, that could be planted into the mind. Um, so it all kind of came together with, with the, the visuals of the, the algorithm and, um, and with this technological metaphor and created this kind of cohesive metaphor and framework for actually making these optimizations to your mind in, in a systematic sense, rather than just focusing on what you're going through at, at any given moment. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, I, I like that. It's interesting. I, th I do think that the that the analogy of reprogramming the mind is definitely <clears throat> definitely useful uh, when it comes to philosophy and, and personal growth. And I I, I want to know uh, what your definition of the the end game is, as in the you know the the result of you, you use the word happiness. Um, you you know use the word mind redesigning the mind. I, I'd love to, I'd love to know. Uh, what you see in these words, you know, what do you mean by happiness? What do you mean by, uh, by the mind that we're, that we are um, uh, redesigning? Uh, I'll give you a chance to, and, and also if you want to kind of segue into psychotecture, because I know that's the, the word that you use um, for your kind of method. So uh, yeah, I'll let you, let you dive into those kind of definitions. <clears throat> yeah, that's a great question. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll kind of start with the end there. So the psychotecture is the sort of core principle in this book, and it's the process of redesigning your mind, um, kind of viewing it more as a creative design process than this uh, white-knuckled battle of will uh, to constantly mm -hmm. do all the things that you want and, and not experience any suffering or whatever. Um, so stoicism tends to view, or at least the way stoicism is interpreted today, it tends to view the end goal as tranquility, as the absence of negative emotions. And I, I kind of started out with that, seeing that as the goal. And by the end of it, it had kind of formed a new, um, a new sort of almost philosophy around that, that centers around uh, your actual software of your mind resembling your ideal software more and more, or your ideal character, mm. basically becoming the person you want to be whether or not that's that involves negative emotions right so experiencing it's a little bit aristotelian really it's about experiencing anger to the right degree in the right situation it's about experiencing grief when your ideal self would experience grief rather than necessarily not at all it kind of depends all about all on your values and and what you the kind of person you would would like to be mm, yeah yeah, I, I do like the way that you use the word uh, resembling your kind of, uh, I forget the word that you used before that, almost your ideal picture of, you know, what it is that you would be working towards. Because I, I think that that's definitely very similar to the way that I look at, um, it, you know, what I consider to be alignment, you know, which is when uh, the person who you are, are kind of aiming at becoming uh, or 
and it, it, it's even hard to get into that sort of stuff <laughs> because uh, you know um uh, how do you what makes you think that the person who you're aiming to become is anything like the person that would be happy and fulfilled you know but right but, uh, and so th- there's a question of aims there like what are we actually aiming at but uh, the way that I see it is that you, you kind of want to bring yourself into alignment with the person who you think that you should be um, or that you're at least moving towards uh, as an ideal. Um, and the closer you can get to actually being the person who you'd like to be as opposed to being somebody who is just always one step behind that person, you know, you're going to feel more fulfilled and, and, and uh, more uh, meaning in your life. Um, so I do like that that's, it's, it's, it's a kind of gradual, a gradual process of, of becoming that person and getting closer to it. Um, and, and obviously the journey is, uh, as cheesy as it sounds, the journey is, is what makes it worth it, you know? Um, of course. but, uh, but okay. So, so, so we're trying to redesign the mind here. I wanted to ask a, a question about, uh, you mentioned the, the kind of biological inbuilt code that is kind of within us. I mean, uh, how 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 do you suggest that the person goes about restructuring that that kind of I mean I don't I don't I, I'm not qualified to to <laughs> make statements about how we can you know restructure our biological code but well, well here's an example uh, one thing that I often talk about with my clients is is this idea that listen it's taking you so long to become this person who you are right now. And on top of that, you've got encoded within you, like you say, you know, millions of years of, of evolution. So you've got a battle with that. You've also got a battle with the generational problems that have been passed down through your family and everything. So, you know, there's all sorts of things that you have to wrestle with um, uh, in order to, to move to that next level. And it's not going to take, you know, a day or two days or a week. It's going to take a significant amount of time. How do you walk people through the process of, of restructuring that embedded code that they already have there when it's such a tight grip on them as it is? Right. So I think I'll, I'll kind of go into this uh, triad that I introduce in the book between cognitive and emotional and behavioral uh, mm. algorithms, right? Um, it's, it's definitely true that, that, these things are deeply ingrained in us. So it's not going to be easy, or in most cases, it's not going to be easy to make these kind of optimizations. I think there's a different solution uh, to every individual sort of case by case basis, um, sort of case by case issue, right? So in the cognitive realm, what you're trying to do is, is to see reality as clearly as possible. And you've got these biases some of which exist simply because we weren't made to perceive reality clearly. Others, which mm. may actually exist to keep us from seeing reality, right? Because it, it might not uh, might not be good for you know, doing the things like surviving and reproducing that we're supposed to do. Um, so in that case, you you have to engage in debiasing most of the time. So you're you're trying to identify which biases are present in your mind, which by default, you should assume that, that there's tons of them that you aren't aware of. Uh, and then there, there are processes that have proven effective for getting rid of them. Right? There, there are, it's, it's kind of limited the research that's been done on actually removing biases. And a lot of it is kind of mixed and inconclusive. But what gives me 
a lot of optimism about it is actually when you look at the emotional effects of different biases and you look at cognitive behavioral therapy specifically, hmm. that's been a major influence for a lot of these ideas. And it really, you know, you may be aware it, it has its roots in stoicism, essentially CBT, you know, was created by essentially two people, Aaron Beck and, uh, and Aaron, I'm blanking on his name right now, but uh, it was essentially created by people who were influenced by stoicism. Albert Ellis, that's his name. Uh, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to think <laughs> as well, and I couldn't remember either. So that's why I can jump in. Yeah. Right. No. Um, but uh, yeah, they, they were influenced by a lot of these ideas that are central to stoicism. And it's proven to be the most effective therapeutic method ever developed. And I think you know, a lot of what it does is it actually has you restructure the, the cognitive biases that are preventing, that are, are causing these negative emotions that are causing you not to see clearly and, and not seeing clearly is what's causing you to experience these, these emotional problems. Hmm. So in that case, it, it's, it's really the most straightforward how you actually go about redesigning it because there is a therapeutic process in place called cognitive restructuring which actually has you go through a number of steps to eliminate your, your negative emotions by eliminating the distorted thoughts that are triggering them. Mm. And, and I can get more into any of that, but you know, the behavioral realm is the one that we're actually the most familiar with people talking about making changes in because we're changing our habits there. And there's mm. a lot of talk about habit change and, and a lot of books uh, that, that are hot right now talking about changing habits. So, so there's a lot of good proven, uh, you know, stuff on, on changing behaviors as well. Mm. Yeah. Well, it, def it definitely seems like this would be an interesting uh, way to look at the kind of feedback loop that happens uh, as you're making these changes. Cause obviously, you know, like when I think about this sort of thing, I think of, um, you know, Epictetus's uh, dichotomy of control, which is like, hey, bring everything back to the soul, bring everything back to what's happening deep within within you as a person, because that's the root of everything. It's the root of all your perceptions. I, I'm getting a sense as well that you're very interested in working on the, the uh, yeah, as, as you said, the biases, or you might say the misguided perceptions that we already just ha have have been embodied into. Uh, that's not the right way to put it, but I think the point is made. Um, <laughs> and then, and then you think about uh, you know Marcus Aurelius, and he said that you know perception is everything. So um, I can see how this this would be an interesting feedback loop of you know you work on your cognition that leads you to experiencing different emotions, which lead you to different behaviors. And then because you're making these different choices in your behaviors, it's going to be a feedback loop again that embodies those behaviors into your cognition and turns it into kind of a, a, a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Right. And I'm actually, you know, flipping. I don't know if you share the video or, or if it's only audio, yeah, we'll but share it, yeah. <laughs> nice. But I'm flipping to a page where you can see this like super complex uh, chain of interconnected algorithms that mm. is based on a, a real patient where, where basically some distorted thoughts at the beginning are resulting in, you know, negative emotions, which are then resulting in uh, these harmful behaviors like self-harm and addiction. So there is this sense in which many of these uh, algorithms, many of these tendencies and habits do have this sort of chain reaction and, and do end up feeding back into others. Um, and there's a reason why I 
I ordered the book the way I did, um, even though, you know, I think the emotional section is possibly the most interesting in the book. I think you have to deal with the cognitive realm first, because so many of our emotions and so many of our behaviors that we don't like are the result of uh, misguided beliefs and distorted thoughts. But mm -hmm. they're absolutely, you know, and, and again, I'm coming to Aristotle. He said that the mind was essentially a, a bunch of habits. Essentially, people and their character are a conglomerate of interconnected habits. Mm. And that idea always really resonated with me, too. And it has made me think that the algorithm metaphor may even be more fitting. It may sort of invoke this, this software where, where you've got inputs coming in and outputs going out. But there are a lot of different processes happening in between that, that are affecting our, our feelings and our moods long term and our actions and all these things. Mm. Yeah, well, I, I definitely agree that I think it's I think it can be appropriate to um, look at everything as if it's just a pattern that is, you know, kind of jumping into the system of code, you might say, and 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 repeating itself over and over. I mean, uh, one of the quickest ways to understand that, I think, is just to look at your life and look at all of the things that you do repeatedly over and over again in your day that seem like very, very small actions, but really that over the course of your life make up the bulk of your time, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, e even something as simple as eating breakfast in the morning is a habit. You know, it's like you calculate how much time that's going to spend, you know, in your whole life. Um, you know, if you spend 45 minutes a day, you know, cooking your breakfast and then sitting down eating it and, and something like that. Um, it's like, man, if, if you calculate how much time you spend on any specific habit in your life and, and you look at how, how long you'd spend over the course of your life, it's insane. Um, and, and then you look at, yeah, you look at everything that's happening around you. And what you see is that it is just the, the cycling of these habits over and over again, all these patterns. It's such an interesting way to look at it, but you know, we, we, we've, we've mentioned, okay. So you've mentioned Aristotle, Zeno, Epictetus, um, you know, highly influenced by the Stokes. Who are some other influences that you had for this, for this book that, that really um, changed the way that you thought about life? Uh, yeah. Well, I would say Buddhism is definitely a, another major influence, right? And actually one of the, you know, mindfulness is kind of the big thing that, that everyone's talking about related to Buddhism. And that certainly plays a role in this. I, I consider a certain degree of metacognitive awareness to be kind of prerequisite to all these changes you want to make to mm -hmm. your mind. Because if you don't notice what's going on in your mind, how can you really change it? Mm. Uh, but there are a lot of ideas in Buddhism that I find even more interesting. I think uh, Dukkha, right, that's it, been translated as suffering, but I think a better translation is unsatisfactoriness. This idea mm. that we not only have these cravings that we that we uh for things that we want that that sort of never end and not only do they not result in satisfaction but it almost seems like we're wired to to misperceive reality in that way i kind of have a theory that that we have a bias that was planted into us because it helps us survive that that our desires will result in satisfaction um, and, and, and continually we find this isn't true. We get what we want and we're not any happier. We just want more or we get the exact opposite of what we want and, and we actually end up liking it. Right. But mm. we have this confidence that, uh, that is so persistent. It makes you think that it, it was wired into us and, 
And in order to, to really lead a good life, I think you have to find a way to, to change the hardwiring in that sense, to get rid of those biases and, and actually keep with you these ideas that you reflect on for a minute when you're reading you know, an inspiring book, and then you kind of move on with your life and go back to the same mistakes. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, a lot of, a lot of good ideas in Buddhism. There, there are a lot of other philosophical thinkers. Uh, Nietzsche has been a big <clears throat> influence as well. Um, mm. you know, he was that critical. Trip. <laughs> yeah, he sure is. <laughs> yeah. That's a great word to describe him. Uh, <laughs> He was he was critical of the Stoics along with just about everyone else, but he has more in common with them than he thinks as well. Mm. I mean, one of these one of these ideas that um, comes up a little bit in this book, um, I think will will probably come up even more in in the ideas that are forming around a next book uh, is is this idea of amor fati, uh, which translates to the love of fate or the love of one's mm. fate. Uh, it's a pretty central idea in Stoicism. And, and Nietzsche talks a lot about it as well. This idea that, that we have to find a way to embrace whatever happens to us. We have to interpret whatever happens in the best possible way and be thankful for what's happening to us. Um, I think a lot of us reflect on, you know, the problems we were dealing with like five years ago. And mm. we say, oh, well, that wasn't really a problem. That didn't matter in the grand scheme of things. Or even I'm glad that happened. Um, it's easy to do that with something that you were struggling with five years ago. It's much harder to do it with something that you're dealing with right now, even though you can tell yourself five years from now, you know, I'll probably be glad this happened or it won't matter. Uh, mm -hmm. It's very difficult to keep this, this continual embrace of your fate and of what happens to you, even the difficult things in mind. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and this is something that I see, you know, this idea, it, it comes up in all these different practical philosophies. It, it seems, it seems that it's, it's definitely plays a big part in, in actually escaping the sort of default wiring of your mind and, and really achieving a, a more deep lasting sense of well-being. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree totally. I mean, I'm, I'm no stranger to that idea. I have it tattooed on my arm oh, nice. more fatty, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, I think that, I think that one of the reasons why you find it in so many places is because it seems like a pretty reasonable observation to say that there are a lot of things that are way bigger than us and there are a lot of systems that we actually fit into as smaller parts as human beings and if you know you can act as if those systems are just oppressing us and you know we're just you know the playthings of the gods or you could act as if well, I mean, if I can't control the fact that there are all these things that are bigger than me that, you know, like I exist within nature, I'm not separate to nature, I exist within it as the system, you know, well, maybe if I act as if the things that are happening within that system might be good for me, or, you know, maybe if I act as if, um, you know, because I'm a part of this system, there's also a part of me that uh, is fully able to contribute to this system in some sort of way, you know, building a positive connection to whatever is bigger than us. And, you know, I think, I think that idea of a more fatty, um, really, uh, well, well, what, one of the things that I thought about that idea was that it really sounded very similar to what I was taught, uh, when I was growing up as a Mormon, which was that, um, 
which was that, you know, you follow God's plan for you. You know, there's going to be all yep. sorts of things that are, that are in your way. There's all sorts of barriers, right? But, but in the end, um, just act as if, hey, you know, maybe it could be good for me. You know, may, maybe something's happening here that if I go along with it, like the dog in the cart, and if I, you know, choose to uh, pay attention, maybe I can get some value out of this because it's God's plan. You know, and, 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 you know, so I, I, I left the church later on, but then I found this idea and I was like, hang on, is this the exact same thing? Just, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's like, just act as if, act as if what is happening to you is good um, or could be yeah. good. Um Right. And, and I wanted to dive into that. You, you mentioned meta, uh, metacognitive awareness. Um, I, I, I really like that term and I'd like to know what, what you mean by it um, and what you mean by uh, the, this, yeah, this awareness of your metacognition. Right. So metacognitive awareness is basically thinking about thinking or awareness of your own field of awareness, right? It's essentially what, what, uh, you're trying to achieve when you do mindfulness meditation, uh, which, you know, ha has gotten sort of turned into this, you know, relaxation method um, today and in culture. But I think the primary goal of it, as I see it, is to get a better understanding of what's going on in your own mind. Um, because I think that that can only help you, you know, introspection can actually, if done just by itself, it can actually make you less self-aware than before you did it just kind mm -hmm. of a, a shocking finding. Um, but I think what's missing is, is this ability to actually sit back and non-judgmentally observe your own thoughts, your own feelings. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it often starts by focusing on the body and the breath and that type of thing. But, mm. um, you know, really I connect it to this whole framework because if you're thinking about your life in the sense of a, just a story like this happened and that caused this and this simple, these simple relationships, you're really not understanding the complexity of what's going on in your mind. So if you can actually observe, uh, you know, the, the algorithms, so to speak, that are getting triggered and, and what's causing them and what they're related to, um, then, then that's going to be a huge step for you. And it, it's not just meditation that can give you this kind of awareness. I think, I think it's a good thing to combine for most people with, with other methods, but sort of getting back to, um, the cognitive therapy component, you know, one of the most important methods for, uh, cognitive restructuring is to actually keep a log of every time you experience a certain emotion, right? Keep a log, you know, an, an unwanted emotion generally, right? Keep a log of that emotion, what situation triggered it what thoughts you had immediately preceding it and then identify, you know, the distortions that may be present in that thought. If you keep a log like this for long enough, you'll eventually start to identify a lot of patterns. You'll start to see, okay, like 75% of the time that I get upset, it's because someone is giving me constructive criticism, for example, you know, it, mm. it could, you know, you'll have little findings like that. And if you can go in and actually change the belief, identify and then change the belief that is distorted, that's causing you to suffer, you, you can get rid of major categories of emotional suffering. You, you can make these long-term changes so that you not only don't have the struggle in the moment when it's happening, but it's your default response not to, not to deal with this, this painful emotion. 
so it can really help you um, kind of get out of your own way if you keep a log like this and you actually develop this awareness of what these patterns are in your own mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that. And it, it, it definitely sounds uh, as if it is, yeah, something, as you say, you know, derived from uh, the Buddhist traditions as well of just really going deep within the mind. And, and uh, you know, it's funny, I had a conversation with one of my clients yesterday that it was similar to this in that um, we recognized that he was actually engaging in this process because he was thinking about his thinking about his thinking and seeing that there's these layers upon layers upon layers mm-hmm. upon layers. And and one of the analogies that I like to think of in that case is um, one given by Alan Watts, where he kind of talks about this idea that we're always searching for that place within our mind that is our higher self. And it's kind of like there's a robber in the first floor of a building and the police come in to find the robber. But by the time they go to the first floor, he's already gone to the second floor. And then the police move up to the second floor and the robber's already gone to the third floor. And it's this idea that, you can never quite you can never quite grasp that part of yourself that is your higher self, right? And and I think that that is, um, well, I'm not qualified to talk about Buddhism at all because I haven't spent enough time with it. But it seems like that is one of the major um, uh, destinations of a Buddhist practice, which is arriving at that place where where you relinquish control and you no longer try to uh, find what it is that's your higher self, but you are um, almost brought into agreement with your, with your nature as as, as who you are. How do you, how how do you, I guess, reconcile the relinquishing of control uh, that you find in a lot of, um, a lot of the Eastern traditions with the, well, actually, I have to say one other thing. So with the the sense of um, learning how to gain greater discipline over yourself that we find in a lot of the Hellenistic philosophies, noting also that the way that we look at it today, you know, I hear way too many people say, um, hey, I'm really interested in controlling my emotions, you know, and and it just doesn't seem like that's the that's the 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 right word to use when it comes to your emotions because it's definitely something to be integrated rather than controlled right but how do you reconcile those two parts you know of relinquishing control that you find in eastern philosophy and and finding that greater control that you find in sort of western philosophy right so there are a few different angles on the one end i think that the word control can be used in a lot of different ways i think mm. i think it's possible to simultaneously uh, not think you can control your emotions and also uh, develop greater control over them. And, mm. and it's not necessarily a contradiction, right? Um, yeah. I, I tend to, the sort of Western sort of Hellenistic philosophies tend to resonate more closely with me because um, I, I like the sort of cognitive rational approach uh, rather than just letting go. I, I even say, you know, towards the end of talking about meditation, uh, a lot of times when you hear people praising meditation, uh, they're talking about just developing this awareness and then doing it some more. And that's all you have to do. And I really like the pro- the approach of developing awareness so you can, you know, get better at engineering what's going on in there. Right. But, but then, of course, there is that question of whether, you know, you should be brute forcing your emotions away or, or can't even brute force them away um, mm. and, or whether... Um, 
whether there's a different way to resolve the the unwanted parts of yourself. And I think you know studies studies do show that uh, suppressing emotions tends to backfire, right? That that tendency to just push it away and and try to force it away that that doesn't really work. But cognitive reappraisal, which again very much has its roots in stoicism, that that reinterpretation of a stimulus so that you change the emotional trajectory you're going through. Um, that that has proven to be effective time and time again for controlling your emotions. So again, mm. you know, it, it is possible to control them, but there are right and wrong ways to do it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. No, I like that. I, I do think I do think you're right in that it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, this this strange dichotomy of you know you're either grasp it. You know, there's different there's different ways to view the word control and. Do you, do you feel do you feel like uh, do you feel like it's almost as if uh, the relinquishing of control puts you in a better position to be able to steer your emotions in a different way, like uh, to to stop being so grasping and to stop trying to push them away, but to to maybe become friends with yourself as opposed mm-hmm. to you know facing yourself like a like an enemy. Yeah, definitely. I think um, I think it relates pretty closely. I wrote um, I write about this in in one of the chapters of the book, and I did a piece for Modern Stoicism recently, where I talked about uh, stoicism and desire regulation, mm. um, and it's kind of an, a different angle to look at it that um, kind of connects more to modern psychology. It's this idea that many of these stoic principles are actually meant to help us manipulate our own desires, either increase a desire or decrease it, right? And and so I kind of go through uh, these different methods, right? Gratitude, right? Negative visualization, uh, the view from above that, that you were referencing early, the, earlier, these different uh, thought experiments or mindsets or exercises, uh, they can be used to tame your desires. So, you know, the traditional way of dealing with desires, of course, is, is to just try to get everything you want. And that's the sort of grasping, controlling approach that that tends to be problematic, right? Mm-hmm. If you actually try to control the desires themselves, rather than trying to get everything you want, you can, you can get what you want much more easily without the strain and, and the suffering that we tend to think goes along with our desires, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, gratitude, it, is a great way. It's a it's a great habit to build, um, like a weekly gratitude practice. Simply because it increases your desires for what you already have, and decreases your desires for what you don't have. Because mm. so often that's our problem. We're we're essentially taking for granted all the things that we already have and all the good things about our lives, and we're we're blowing all the things we don't have way out of proportion. So this kind mm. of resets that and, and puts it in proper proportion. Mm. Right. You know, you can view Buddhist ideas like non-self, right? The idea that that the self is an illusion. You can view that as a, a desire regulation method as well. Because when when someone insults us, the reason why we get upset is because we have this identity construct that we feel is hurt, right? Someone someone has damaged who we are as a person. And when you kind of distance yourself from that notion of self, when, when you step back and say, okay, well. Uh, this is all a lot more complex than that. You know, a person is not a story, right? There's a, there's mm. all these different uh, 
complexities. You you can turn down that desire to be uh, this this perfect individual that no one would ever criticize, right? So there there are all these different methods for um, it's kind of controlling and not controlling simultaneously because you're you're grasping less uh, over what you want, but you're also domesticating your desires. Hmm. Yeah. I, 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 uh, I, I like the discussion about desires, you know, and, and domesticating your, ide- your desires as well. I, I like the analogy. I'm, I guess I'm wondering, um, I'm, I, I'm wondering how, how it works in terms of, uh, okay, let me, let me put it like this. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how I want to ask this question because it's a, uh, it's, it's like a complex issue, right? Um, I, I have found, I guess, over my own um, path of personal growth and, and, and engaging in philosophy that I don't know if there was ever a point where I kind of crushed a desire or that's the wrong word to use because it's definitely very forceful. But, you know, where, where I, I don't know if there was a point where I saw that my desire was changing rather than a gradual process over quite a long time where I was settling into what I was learning that my, that my mind already wanted. Right. And that there were, you might call them these cognitive biases or almost these mindsets and these, these states of being that were um, pulling me in all kinds of directions. The, the, the biggest thing that I found that, that helped me was, um, was learning to watch myself as if I didn't actually know who I was, right? And mm-hmm. watching as I did things throughout my day, what were the things that I seemed to, by my actions, uh, uh, find great value in and find meaning in? And what were the things that, even though the thing that I thought was me uh, was saying, you should do this, I just didn't do, right? Because there's mm-hmm. all sorts of things that we do like that, right? And, and you know, we... No matter how many times you say to yourself, you know, uh, hey, you need to, you need to remove this habit. You need to stop doing this. You need to stop doing this. Um, you know, it's it's not going to happen unless you start um, to to I, I guess unless you replace it with something else that you probably want even more, um, but you're not paying attention to. And so, for me, a, a classic example is, you know, I I, I left my job uh, at the start of last year and. Um, to come in and do all this um, and the podcast and everything. And um, I came from a position where I was absolutely crushing it on social media for this gym that I was working at. You know, I was the social media guy. Everybody knew that I was, um, you know, I was posting all day, every day on, you know, getting, getting people in the door. And, um, and so I was like, cool, I'm going to take that over to my, um, to my, coaching practice and my podcast and I'm going to, I'm going to be on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I'm going to be all over the place. Right. And then I just was watching myself and I hated social media. I just didn't want to be on there (laughs) and I wasn't doing anything with it. Right. And, and, and philosophy was pulling me in a completely different direction. Right. Now I desired to be doing stuff on social media because it was going to be, you know, good for business, but but I really didn't desire that. If if I paid attention, it took me a whole year to realize that and to remove myself from these social medias and to focus on something that I I, I saw that I was already heading towards. 
which was, you know, doing more meaningful work in, in the areas that I actually cared about. And so I'm wondering uh, how much of it is a decision to change a desire and how much of it is a long-term like process of kind of falling into uh, who it is that you actually are and what it is that you actually want. Right. So that actually gets into what I write about in the third section and actually, you know, changing your behaviors and when you should, um, there's one on, on goal design and on, uh, on setting the right goals essentially. So I talk about the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, right? It's been found that extrinsic motivations like, like, you know, the desire to make money or get more social status or more Facebook likes or whatever it is that, (laughs) that is uh, exciting you. Um, These are actually not only less motivating than intrinsic desires, but they can actually hurt performance. They, They can actually damage your effectiveness if you're getting rewarded in these intrinsic way in these extrinsic ways. So the question becomes, do you fully commit to your intrinsic desires, to your own motivations that that are sort of the deepest within you and your passions, right? Or do you just force yourself to do things that you don't want to do all the time and, and find ways to motivate yourself? Mm. And I think the answer to get that extrinsic goal, like, you, yeah, yeah, I love this. Right, goal. right. Yeah. So I think the answer is that you're never going to be able to sustain long term uh, a bunch of desires for, for things you don't actually want or a bunch of uh, motivation for things you don't actually want to do. If your whole life is centered around uh, doing things that you don't find pleasant, uh, th- then it's not going to work. You're, you're going to burn out before long. Um, so I think mm. the answer is that you need to factor your sort of deepest motivations and passions into the path that you take. And, and you really want to use intrinsic desire to achieve these, um, these creative, you know, actually intellectually stimulating tasks. And then sometimes you'll need to use extrinsic motivation. You'll need this sort of carrots and stick motivation in order to do the instrumental tasks that you need to achieve that big uh, intrinsic goal. Mm. Right. But ultimately I think, you know, what I kind of lay out um, as a method for actually setting these goals is that you really don't want your desires to have anything to do with them. You really want your values to be this sort of top level determinant of your goals. And I think, you know, it can be hard to distinguish at times, but, but I think desires have this sort of hot motivational pulling force. They're, they're like these screams that you can't ignore and your values are often the, the whispers that are hard to notice. But mm. if you can get in touch with those values and, and that person that you really want to be, and then you set the goals below that, the, the individual sub goals to achieve what you need to, you can use your desires as the fuel to get yourself there. And mm. you can use in, uh, intrinsic motivation, or you can use carrot and stick rewards whenever you think it'll be the most effective way to achieve those goals. Mm, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I like all of that. You know, I, I like the intrinsic extrinsic uh, dichotomy there. I think that it, it definitely fits into a lot of what we talk about when it comes to say, you know, the dichotomy of control, what can you really control, pull it back in, you know, within yourself there. 
and, and and I think that it also plays into this idea of living in agreement with 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 nature. I don't want to read into it just into you know the philosophy that we're talking about here, Stoicism, but um, but it definitely makes sense that you would want to remove the clutter and find out what it is that you as a person and your nature is really looking for. And I like that you, I think you use the phrase to get in touch with your values. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I much prefer that, you know, to say something like, you know, to, to redesign your values because it's, it's, you know, there, there are some, I, I think that there's, uh, well, I've been convinced lately uh, that there is like a real biological element to um, an evolutionary element to to virtue and and to uh, you know higher order values. That if you're able to uncover within yourself, it's almost as if you you find like a wellspring of intrinsic motivation because you realize that that's that's the really important stuff that is going to move you forward. And so, you know, you 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 know, you put your life together in such a way that, that your internal nature and your values are working for the good of, of, you know, of your culture and of the people around you. And, and, and that's how you kind of fit into this, to this, uh, you fit into the system into which you were born, you know, by, by uncovering what it is that you're really, you really are deep down and seeing how you can bring that out. Um, to a greater extent, I think I think I like what Sharon LaBelle says. She says um, it's like taking your seat in the theater of life, you know, and finally finding out what it is that you're supposed to be doing, where you're supposed to be going. Yeah, man, I, I, I love all of this stuff. You know, it, it, it's just um, it, it's just the sort of stuff that we that we need in a very um, confusing landscape that we're in in the world right now. You know, and I think that a lot of people are hungry for this. So. Man, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I just want to give you an opportunity as well to, to you know, let people know um, where they can find the book, where they can find you and, and, and we'll send them over there. Yeah, and thank you so much for having me, Simon. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, um, and we'll have to do it again, seriously. It's been, it's been awesome. Definitely. I'd, I'd be interested in that for sure. Um, yeah, so whether or not you, you are uh, interested in getting the book, I would love to have you join my email list if you want more updates more more ideas like this shared with you um i've actually got a shorter book uh that i made that that's sort of more of a coffee table book called the book of self-mastery and it's a lot of quotes from stoic and buddhist and and all these different thinkers and, and some commentary from me uh right now the digital version is paid on amazon but if you go to um this link designingthemind.org slash free dash mastery I will give you the the digital version of the book for free and you can stay on the email list or unsubscribe, whatever you want. But uh, yeah. Yeah, man. Awesome. Well, uh, yeah, absolutely. Everybody go check it out. And uh, Ryan, uh, you know, I'm excited for you. This is, this is huge. You're releasing this book and, uh, and congratulations and, and thank you for writing it. Yeah. Thanks so much, Simon. It's great talking to you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Practical Stoic Podcast. Remember that you can support the show by going to patreon.com forward slash Simon J.E. Drew. There you'll gain access to many exclusive episodes that haven't been released yet, as well as over 200 episodes recorded before 2020. If you'd like to work one-on-one with me as you move towards your ideal, then you can go to simonjedrew.com forward slash coaching. But for now, I'll talk to you next time.